the first thing of it is, I would like to thank um, uh, the Greater Seattle Intergroup for allowing me to come and share my strength, hope, and experience with you this weekend. Um, I remember a few years ago, I was supposed to be out there, and it was about this time of the year when you were going to do the retreat anyway, and you had one of these humongo snowstorms that moved through Seattle, and it closed the airport and all that other stuff, and they at the the retreat center where it was supposed to happen, there was a tree that landed on the, the, the light wires and stuff, and you wouldn't have been able to have the retreat anyway. So even though I didn't get to fly out, it's wonderful to be here with you all. So this is, this is the part where I tell you what it was like, what happened and what I'm like now. I have a few, few notes here, but before we get started, um, I just wanted to let you know that I looked up the word retreat, and this is what retreat uh, is. And Tana, you have to unmute so that you can be this, uh, tell, tell them what you said too. So the retreat is an act or process of withdrawing, especially from what is difficult, dangerous, or disagreeable. And as I was talking with Tana earlier, working uh, living this program some, is sometimes pretty difficult. We get to um, deal a lot with dangerous stuff every once in a while. And it's terrible to be in this world with the disagreeable people who won't live the way we think that, we, that they should. But Tana's idea of a retreat is something different. Well, I just want to say <clears throat> retreat is not the same as retreat, you know. Um, in you know, you don't get to retreat yourself by going and having a second helping of binge food. So, this is not the same thing. Yes, I would go with Mike's definition. The other one is a period of group withdrawal for prayer, meditation, study, and interaction under a director. Well, we're all together. We're, we're withdrawing from, from a lot of life and stuff in some respects because we're all together. There will maybe be some prayer with this. There may be some meditation, but we'll be studying and we'll be interacting with one another. And it's not under, under a director, but that director is, the, is our higher power. So I'm finished with that, and now I'll start with what I was like. I come from a good German, Irish, Roman, Catholic, Kansas farm family, well, farm type family. My dad was involved in, in agribusiness in that he delivered um, gasoline, diesel fuel, and petroleum products to the farmers and small businesses in the area. My, my maternal grandfather had the business before him. Um, I'm one of uh, seven kids. I'm the second child in a family of seven children. My eldest brother had cerebral palsy and he was never able to walk, talk, or do anything like that. And I always said that I was the first quote, normal child of the family, which is kind of a misnomer in and of itself. And of course, Tana reminded me once that um, normal is the setting on a dryer. So that really set that off really well. Um, I grew, I was, Normal weight, and I don't know what happened, but between grades two and three, I just blossomed. 
by the third grade, I was 110 pounds and third graders aren't very tall. And um, so from grades three through 12, I gained 15 and a half pounds each year um, for the next nine, 10 years. And when I finally graduated from high school, I was at 232 pounds that I know of. Um, the thing of it is, I don't have to tell you, for those of you who grew up fat kids, knowing what it was like every year having to get bigger size clothes, or for men, we were always in the husky sizes and the shirts that would have the little gaposis and all that other stuff. And I remember my pants would never last long because my thighs would rub together and then the, the crotch would um, wear out and they would have to be repaired and it was just absolutely awful. I was an uber responsible child since my dad's business was run out of the house and my eldest brother had cerebral palsy. I, um, I told my sister once, um, I, we were all baptized in my mother's baptismal gown, all seven of us. I've got five brothers and one sister. And um, I, I took the, the moniker of the parish where I was baptized more than the rest of them because the name of the parish was Queen of the Holy Rosary. And I took the name really well. That's, that's what happened to me. I just took it more than anybody else. And I told my sister once, well, Trish, it's like this. You were the only girl in the family, but I always have been and always will be the eldest daughter um, because I was raised more like a daughter than I was like a son because my folks needed so much help. Um, I'm your basic sugar addict. I can eat the stuff frozen, baked, raw, thawed, indifferent. I've eaten moldy fruitcake under the auspices of I need the penicillin. The really sick part about that is my first degree is in biology education. And I know that the penicillin has to be refined and uh, all that other stuff before it's ever done, but that never stopped me from with that. Um, I began to lose weight when I went to college and uh, because my biggest sugar pusher, mom, wasn't there. I could only go through the line once at school. And um, the other part of it is um, I didn't have a car and I had to walk every place. So I began to lose weight. But when you're that size, um, at 232 pounds, even if you lose 10, 15 pounds, nobody notices. And so it took a while. Um, I also want you to know that my mom, I lovingly call my mom the cookie queen of Stillwell, Kansas. And this woman could bake cookies like you would not believe. And she would put them on the back porch in certain containers. And I always called them Marge's cookie country. And I went to midnight mass one year, not for the spiritual aspect. I went to midnight mass so that I could, because I gave up bread, sweets, and potatoes for Lent or for Advent that season. And after midnight mass, I stopped, I flew from one cookie country to the other. And then once I had visited all the countries, I had a layover in several country, cookie countries. It was miserable. What happened was I watched mom fight the battle of the bulge. She had tried everything to lose weight. And I figured if it didn't work for mom, it sure in the heck wasn't going to work for me. And um, she wrote me, I, I was in, a, when I was in college um, in the early 70s, I, I lived in a funeral home to help to put myself through school. 
And so I got this letter from her and she was very good about writing me letters. I wasn't too swift, but she was very good about writing me letters. And she said that she'd gone to OA, Overeaters Anonymous. And I thought, oh, hell, here we go again. Mom's trying something new because she tried so many weight loss organizations and all that. And it just never seemed to work for her. But the more I saw of mom, the less I saw of mom, if you know what I mean, because she was abstaining, um, there was less of mom. I mean, she just got to be a smaller woman. And that amazed me. When I went back to do my student teaching in uh, the, the spring semester of 1976, um, my eating was kind of getting hinky again and all that stuff. So I went to my first OA meeting with my mom. Mom 12-stepped me. And I went to a meeting with her and I knew, I knew I was home. I was home, folks, I was home. So I wanted to go back to the meeting with her and she said, no, go find your own meeting. So I did what every other compulsive overeater would do. I went and ate an entire box of frozen zingers by myself. And then on April, this, April, the, um, April the 4th of 1976, I quote joined um, Overeaters Anonymous at the fire station in downtown Olathe, Kansas, and I lovingly call it a happy housewife homemakers group because that's what it was. I was the only guy in the meeting, and I was the only man in that meeting for, for decades, for all the time that I lived there. Um, it was 42 years ago this month that I willingly broke my abstinence. I broke my food abstinence. And then uh, it was in January of 1979. And it was miserable. It was awful. And I can't tell you how um, all the misery that I put myself through. With all that being said, I never left away. I continued to go to meetings. I continued to read the big book. I can, and they, AA 12 and 12, because OA's 12 and 12 was not written at the time. I continued to do all of that stuff. But folks, I never left. And I'm asking you, I don't care whether you've been in the program one day or more than decade, more than 40 years, do not leave because you never know when the miracle is going to happen. Just for those of you who are numbers geeks like me, I've now been in this program for 44 years, nine months and 17 days, which is actually 66 point, um, for 66.47% uh, of my life. Um, I've been abstinent by God's grace for 41 years, five months and 18 days. And that is 61.53% um, of my life. In OA itself, um, I have been abstinent 92.56% of the time I've been in this program. I know that these numbers might not mean a big deal to you, but the only reason I'm telling you this stuff is it works. And I've done it by God's grace, one day at a time, one day at a time, one day at a time. On August the 5th of 1979, I woke up and I said, oh, damn it, I'm still alive. See, folks, um, all, that, all that stuff, all that misery finally came to an end. There's another thing that you need to know is I've never been drunk. I've never used drugs. Um, I've never smoked cigarettes. And the reason that I never used drugs and I never used um, dr uh, alcohol or been drunk was because I was always afraid that I would lose control 
and then try to put the moves on on the guys either in high school or in um, or in college. And growing up a fat gay boy in Kansas in the early late 60s and early 70s, I could have either gotten the crap pounded out of me or killed. And that's the only reason I did that. And to this day, I know that I would need AA if I would ever start to drink. So what happened on August the 5th of 79 is what I really say that I really began to recover from this devastating disease. I wish I could say that I have, I've, I've got perfect abstinence and all this other stuff. No, what I've got is a, a life now that I've never dreamed that I would have. I very rarely tell this story, but I, I need to say this. Six months into my abstinence, I was working, um, I was working for the J.C. Penney Catalog Distribution Center in Lenexa, Kansas when this event occurred. I was um, uh, entering Christmas returns in February of 1980, and all of a sudden, I wanted this particular food item, and I wanted it badly. And all I can say is my keystrokes that day were absolutely tremendous because the more I wanted the stuff, the faster I keystroked. And here's what happened. I knew that if I went back to that, I could not blame my family. I could not blame my sponsor. I could not blame OA. I could not blame the church. I could not blame work. I could not blame anybody. It was me. It was all accountable and responsible on me. It was at that very moment that I felt, I felt that movement, that compulsion lifted from me. I mean, it truly lifted from me. And I've never had the desire to want to do that stuff again. What's it, what is it like now? I don't know. It's really difficult to tell you what life is like now after being around for so long and being abstinent for so long, but I'll give you some highlights what it's like. Um, I've been abstaining and maintaining for over almost over 41 years, one day at a time. That's it, just one day at a time. I have on most days, emotional, physical, and spiritual sobriety. Um, there are certain things that, that I want to let you know, and that's um, I have been given grace in this program, and I have an acronym for grace, and I'll make sure that you, you get this. Um, Judith, what I'll do is I don't have the stuff right here with me. I will email this to you so you can email it to the rest of the folks because these acronyms I'll be using all weekend. Grace. Grace for me is graciously and gratefully receiving abstinence from compulsive eating. Graciously and gratefully receiving abstinence from compulsive eating. That's what I've been given. And the other part, there are many wonderful things that have happened to me since I've been in this program. And there have been really rotten things that have happened to me. And I've been able to do it abstinently. I went back to college. Um, I earned my degree in accounting. I sat for the CPA exam nine times. Nine times, folks. Never passed a part, but never binged after I lost. Um, the other thing of it is, 
I met the lust of my life and he and I moved from Denver to that bastion of liberality cities, Salt Lake City, Utah, lived there for two years and um, went, to, and even though I'm not a member of the predominant faith there, went to LDS Business College, got elected as vice president of the student body because I ran on the, the platform, the minority has the right to be heard. Didn't tell them which minority, they thought it was religious. Um, the other part of it is, um, I, I, I've survived numerous things. I've been told no for the priesthood because I was honest from the get-go. And this was long before um, uh, the AIDS crisis. And this was long before all the pedophile crud. Um, but I was honest because I knew that I could not go in and, and say anything. I told When I told my mom about that, I said that I would never be accepted. She told me I should have kept my mouth closed. And all I said to my mom was, you know, mom, we're both in a 12-step program and we know what happens when we lie. And she never said anything more. I am, I've done some wonderful things in this program. Um, I go out and exercise. One of the things I loved, I've heard this before, uh, my biggest exercise um, before was jumping to conclusions. I always loved that one. Um, but now I don't jump to conclusions that much. I try to work the steps. I try to live the steps and the traditions and use them on my daily life. Um, I want to tell you a story. One time I was back in Kansas City, and this is what all the program has done for me. I was back in Kansas City uh, before I moved out to Colorado, Utah, back to Kansas, back to Colorado. Anyway, I was at this, I wanted to be with my peeps, so I went to a gay bar. And um, as I was leaving the gay bar, who should walk in but the former archdiocesan vocational director who told me no for the priesthood. Now, remember those cartoons where the jaw drops, the tongue flaps, and the eyes are out to here? Well, that's what that man's was. And all I said to him was, and I sat and I was so angry when I saw him. And then I thought, this is when the WWJD um, bracelets were out there, you know, what would Jesus do? And it was, I just put, what would God do? So I just said, well, Paul, how are you? Because you see, folks, I knew that I could not live with that resentment. I knew that I could not do that stuff, folks. I couldn't do that. So I did not call the archbishop the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year and tattle on him. Because what would, say, what that, would that say about my recovery? It would say that I was petty, jealous, and all that other stuff because that man was already going through a lot of hell himself. Here's what I've also been able to live through. I've been able to live through the, the, the death of my grandmother in 99, um, the death of my mother in 2000, the death of my brother in 2015, and the death of my father in 2019. And I did it abstinently, and I did not have to eat compulsively. And all of this stuff, all of this stuff, folks, have been given to me because I never left the program. I, I, and I want to give a plug for service. And I'm going to tell you a story right now. For those of you who might not like some of the way or how this, is, how this retreat is working and all this other stuff, um, if you don't like it, then sign up to help next time. That way you can see 
run it the way you think it needs to be done, and then let God be in charge and see that it doesn't turn out the way you want it to be done. I thank those of you who put this on because I realize the amount of service that you give. There are, uh, I made a list here of some things I wanted to say, and of course, can I find the list? No, but one of the things that I did want to say is osmosis. I'm going to tell you about osmosis because my first degree is in biology and it's going to be short. Osmosis is going from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration through a semi-permeable membrane. And you're going, what the hell does that have to do with Overeaters Anonymous? Okay, here it is. Area of low concentration. Area of high concentration. The 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Semi-permeable membranes. And so anyway, folks, just don't leave. Just come back. It works. And you will find that power greater than yourself and it ain't food. And Tana, I'm giving you 30 seconds of my time. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And I wanna say thank you to everyone here who, who has, um, I want to say thank you to the group who, who's putting this on and all the service, service you've given. This is this is very much a an honor to be asked to to do this retreat with Mike. And you know, Mike you mentioned this before. I think this is our fourth and a half or four and a half time we've done this retreat, and and I just love doing this with Mike. You know, there's there's just a, there's just so much love and appreciation between the two of us, and it's so much fun to do with them. He's just a hoot. Um, so I'm going to talk about what it was like uh, before OA, how I got to OA, and how I work my program. And I was going to say some other things, and now all of a sudden I'm going blank. Okay, so I've been in Overeaters Anonymous. I had to look at this. Um, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 32 years, two months, and 22 days. And I've been abstinent for, or sober with the food for 28.22 years, which is 338.67 months, 10,310 days, and 247,412 hours. But I'm not compulsive when it comes to numbers. So at any rate, um, I came into the program a little over 32 years ago, and it has changed my life. But before I get there, go there, let me talk a little bit about what it was like before I got to OA. Um, I grew up in Eastern Washington State in a small farming community that had about 1,800 people. And I'm sure they threw in a few head of cattle up the, just to get you know a higher population. I, um, was, I was one of three kids. My parents are both teachers. Um, I was the oldest, super, super responsible. I totally get that. Um, you know, when I came, you know, relationships were kind of a mystery for me. I was always kind of an, I was always kind of the square peg that people were trying to fit in a round hole. And, you know, I don't know why that is, but it just was. Um, you know, my whole family was pretty thin and my mom always had these diets pinned to the fridge you know, the grapefruit diet, the, this diet, the that diet, you know, let's eat 7,000 eggs diet or whatever it was. And, um, you know, and so weight was always a big thing, you know, and, and I was always very, very thin until I was a, even though I ate compulsively, 
uh, time, you know, off and on. I was always very thin until my sophomore year of high school. And a couple of things happened that in my sophomore year of high school. One is, um, you know, my beloved cat who was really my confidant. She slept with me every night. I talked to her about all kinds of things that I couldn't talk to anyone about. And um, we'd gone to to uh, east to southeastern Washington to visit my grandma for the weekend. We came back and I couldn't find my cat. I went outside and I was calling for her. And she had she was up on a power pole and couldn't get down. And when she was trying to get down, she was electrocuted. And I saw this and it was just, <gasps> and you know, and to this day, I still get te- I still get very teary-eyed because it was such a it was such a painful thing to have to, to, to have that happen and then to see it happen and feeling responsible that if I had just stayed home instead of going to visit my grandma, I could have prevented this. So that started the compulsive behavior with food. Couple that with having some surgery on my female parts and then have them being putting put on birth control pills afterwards to kind of re- regulate things. They had, um, it had a, a side effect for me is it really messed with my emotions. And I became very depressed and gained 40 pounds in three months. That's a lot of weight to gain in three months. And I was got, you know, very angry stretch marks on my legs, behind my knees, on my hips, on my stomach, on my breasts. I mean, it was just, and you know, when you're, when you're in a a small town and you're in a class of 43 and you all go to PE together and everybody's known each other for their entire life and have these big angry stretch marks on my legs was very embarrassing to have gained weight so fast was very embarrassing. And, uh, I went through, I saw, um, we couldn't figure out what was going on. Part of it was the compulsive overeating, but part of it was these hormones just really did a number on my body. And it messed with another um, hormonal condition that I had that we know what it is now, but um, excuse me, now my nose is gonna run. Um, but we didn't know what it was back then. And one of the side effects is gaining excess weight and you know my voice deepened. I started getting more hair on my face. It was just, you know, I was a hormonal mess, you know, so I had, you know, and then during this time also, I got my first boyfriend, you know, I mean, talk about a cluster F of, you know what, hormones, uh, situations, and at any rate, um, you know, gaining 40 pounds in three months, that, that just was really, that was really hard. And I, you know, and I would do the diets, you know, my weight just went up and down, up and down after that. And I did that for many years. And don't ask me why my nose has started to run. It's because I'm on the, I'm on the, you know, on the screen here. So it's really glamorous. <laughs> so at any rate, um, you know, I, you know, I was, when I say I was kind of a square peg in a round hole, you know, in my, the town that I grew up in, Ritzville, if anybody knows where that is, you know, it's kind of like, welcome to Ritzville, don't blink. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, my parents always really encouraged me to, to become, to be academic. And, you know, and I saw being, I was kind of a square pig in a round hole. I saw academics and getting a good degree was a way to get the hell out of my hometown and not become a farmer's wife and stay in little, this little tiny town where everybody knew what everybody else was doing. And if they didn't know, they'd make a, a, up a good rumor and you probably could figure out where, what it was, you know? And it was probably true, you know. So it was like it was like when I get the hell out of town, and so I went to college. And 
you know, and I wanted to become an electrical engineer. I figured that out my junior year of, of, of high school. It is not cool when everybody wants to be a cheerleader and have a boyfriend and be in sports. And I was as, as athletic as a fence post. You know, I was a kid that the ball would come at me and I would try really hard to catch it and it would hit me in the face and I would cry. You know, it just, I had no eye hand coordination. You know, trying to relate to peers that were, here I was academic and scientific and, and had a really weird sense of humor, very irreverent. And here's all these people who were kind of like, oh, party, oh, boys, and ah, your fashion. And I'm like, oh, God, get me out of here, you know. So I was, you know, I felt like I wasn't given the manual on how to, you know, how to, what was the manual of getting along with people and, and having friends and all that. I, I had friends and I got along with everybody, but I didn't have those connections, very few connections. So I got to, um, I got to college and, uh, you know, it's like I would get in a relationship and I didn't know about setting boundaries and my weight would go up. And then I would break up with that person. Usually it was like in, in one, six month to one and a half year chunks. I'd break up with them. My weight would go down to normal body weight. You know, it dropped 35 pounds or 40 pounds. And then I would get in another relationship. Things would get physical. My weight would go up, you know, and it was just up and down, up and down, kind of like an accordion. Um, got married to my high school sweetheart. I got uh, the relationship became became very verbally and emotionally abusive on the honeymoon, and I was just blown away. I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anything about setting boundaries. My parents are really good about teaching me about open communication and discussion and all that, but I had no experience in setting boundaries. I was a people pleaser. I didn't know how to say no. Um, I, you know, I. A friend of mine, you know, well, I, I got into uh, therapy and they, they, she said to me, you know, by this time I had started into bulimia, uh, compulsive overexercising and, um, and also uh, laxative abuse and diuretic abuse. And I knew I was going to start throwing up next and I couldn't do that. That just, I knew that that was going to, I needed to do something about it. I didn't know what to do. So then I, I got outside help. And she said, well, it might be five years before we can get a handle on this. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be here in five years. We got to do this something quick. A friend of mine said, well, totally unrelated, said, you know, I talked about eating the circular unit that people get for their birthdays and, you know, eating the whole thing. And she said, well, Tana, would you like to go to an OA meeting with me? This is someplace I go and blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, I don't have a problem with food. You know, I'm fine. I'll just follow this commercial weight loss program, which has worked for me. And I'll be just fine. You know, it's very careful way to measure and all this. And um, then another friend of mine said, named Gail said, Tana, I want to go to an OE meeting and I don't want to go by myself. Would you come with me? Well, being a good flaming codependent with both afterburners going, I had to go to that meeting with Gail because she could not go by herself. And so I went to that first OE meeting with Gail and I was a normal weight. I was, I was slim. I was a normal body weight at this point, but I was crazy as hell with food. I was, you know, binging and purging. And I'm restricting, you know, starting myself. I call myself a recovering ABC, anorexic, bulimic, compulsive overeater. And um, anyway, the first meeting I went to, I thought, you guys are up, you know, you just what a bunch of weird people. Don't you know that skeletons belong in the closet? You don't be airing your dirty laundry out to people all over the place. And then people would get up there and, the, and, the, and the, they, we all thought sat theater style and people would go up to the front of the room to share and then when they got done sharing, you know, they'd be sharing these, these traumatic things and they'd be crying and everybody's clapping and laughing at the end. And I'm thinking, what is really wrong with these people? 
So I go back to the second meeting and I'm terrified, you know, and I'm thinking everyone's good from work is going to see me. They're going to, they're going to think loser, you know, and I was afraid that people would recognize me. Nobody recognized me. And, um, but I still thought you guys were really weird, very cult-like. I don't know about these people, you know, but I had to be there for Gail. You know, see, I was there for Gail. And by the third time I went to the meeting, my third meeting, three, you know, three weeks in a row, I thought, man, these guys are weird. But sign me up, I found my lost tribe. And I've been coming back ever since. And um, I got abstinent from bulimia within about two and a half months. So it, by the end of the month, I'll have roughly 32 years of abstinence from bulimia. And I had to get that abstinence first before I got the abstinence from compulsive overeating. Um, I had a pink cloud abstinence for six months. And then it was on and off relapse, four years. It took me four years to get back to back sober with the food. I got into program. I got a sponsor, a food sponsor uh, within the first, first month. And I got a step sponsor within the first uh, probably three months, about two and a half months. And it was my, my step sponsor who got me sober with the, the bulimia part. And, you know, she just said, you may get really fat in order to get sober from bulimia. And that's gotta be your bottom line abstinence, no matter what. So essentially my plan of eating or my abstinence is I call it food sobriety. You know, three meals, a, you know, three meals a day, three snacks, one day at a time, no binge foods, which I call red light foods. To me, I have red light foods, yellow light foods, and green light foods. Red light foods are my drug foods. Those are my alcohol foods. I don't do those no matter what. Like I don't purge no matter what. I don't starve no matter what. That's my bottom line. I don't do that, you know. And then my yellow light foods are things, you know, like maybe chips, which generally I, they don't really call to me, but every once in a while they can, I can get a little hinky with them. So they're kind of like, eh, yellow light, you know. Um, you know, that would be an example of a yellow light food or, you know, nuts is a yellow light food. Um, green light foods are things like fish, lima beans, Brussels sprouts, you know, jalapenos, although I have been to jalapenos before. So that's kind of, I kind of look at food as red light, yellow light, and green light foods. And my bottom line is I don't do my red light behaviors or red light foods. Mike, how much more time do I have? Just so I have a time check. Six. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I want to talk a little, so I talked, I've talked how I got into OA. Um, I talked a little bit about what my plan of eating is. Um, it's, um, you know, I had to, in those first four years where I was in and out of relapse, what, you know, I remember this, this one guy, we called him Hallelujah Hugo. And he really, um, I'm so grateful I started OA in the Bay Area because OA was very, very strong in the 80s in the Bay Area. And he would say, Tana, when you are willing to push a peanut down first street with your nose, then you are willing to take certain steps to become sober with the food. And until you are willing to push that peanut down first, you know, first street with your nose, then you are not going to get recovery in this program. And, you know, but I really took it to heart, you know, and I got to the point finally, um, you know, how I got sober with the food is I was holding on to this really strict way and measure food plan and I wouldn't give it up. And I'd have one, two P too many and I would be, fuck it, I'm off to the races. And I would have bags, boxes and pounds. And finally, my sponsor said, Tana, I want you to change your plan of eating. I'm like, <gasps> That was the last thing I was holding on to. And she says, I want you to do three meals a day, zero snacks, one day at a time, 301 plan. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I might gain weight. Oh, and what about, I'm, I'm hypoglycemic. I've got to eat more than three times a day. 
She said, okay, 331 plan, three meals a day, three snacks, one day at a time. But what if I get fat? You know, your food is none of your business. And I reached this point of utter surrender where I, where I was willing. I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was given the gift of desperation. I was willing to push a peanut down first street with my nose. Thank God I didn't have to do it. Women just talked to me. They would say, I would say, they would say jump. And I'd say, how high and in what direction? Give me a vector, magnitude and direction. I will go do that. And so I worked, even though I was in and out of relapse my first four years of program, I really worked a hard program. Um, you know, I, I used the tools. Um, you know, my, my, my sobriety with food, you know, it's not perfect, but it's pretty darn clean. You know, it's, you know, it's one of the things I learned is if, I, if I'm in a quest for perfection, I'm going to utter the two most dangerous words in my vocabulary, which is it, you know, and I'm going to be off to the races. So I allow myself a little bit of grace, you know, occasionally maybe dinner's a little bit much. And I just, I just text my sponsor and I just let her know, hey, dinner was a little bit heavier than I wanted to be, but I wanted it and it's okay. And then I just get right back to where I am. So it's, it's really, it's been so freeing because it used to be what I used to obsess about what I could eat, what I couldn't eat, how much I had exercise to get the, the weight off, um, you know, and every, every meal was like taught thinking about what I was going to eat for the next meal. And now I have, you know, three meals a day, roughly three snacks. Sometimes I don't have any snacks. It just depends on what my body needs one day at a time and life in between. And that's really great. Um, you know, it talks about to the newcomer, keep coming back no matter what. Um, you know, it talks about that we have a, 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 this insanity that precedes the first bite. It starts with the obsession of the mind. And the, this obsession of the mind is like a used car salesman and it, it can read your mind. And if it can get you to get you to take that first bite, you know, it, it will tell you, oh, one little bite won't hurt. You know, if it gets you to take that first compulsive bite, we're off to the ratios. It's bags, boxes and pounds. That first bite, you know, start with two bites and then three bites. And then it's the whole bag and then it's a box and then it's a pound of whatever. Uh, so once that first bite is taken, then the physical craving or the allergy of the body is set off. And, you know, then we're off to the races. You know, we're, we're I believe, you know, it talks about in the big book, we're like, we've lost the ability to eat normally. We're like a person who's lost their legs. We don't regrow new ones. Once this, whatever it is, the switch happens in our brain and we become convulsive overeaters, we can get to a state of recovery or grace and abstinence through a higher power. And, um, you know, we're, we're powerless over that first bite. You know, and what what will help us stay sober with the food is, you know, a defense from a higher power, you know, or who might choose to call God. For those of who get nervous about the word God, I think of God stands for good orderly direction. What my sponsor is telling me what to, what she's telling me to do, you know, and I, you know, you know, God is my higher power. I consider it like the, the positive energy in the universe that is infused in everything and everybody. Um, you know, a little bit, you know, I believe recovery is threefold. It's physical, emotional, and spiritual. In no way, in no way we come together with a common problem. We're compulsive overeaters. You know, it's really a pisser because in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, in AA, you know, it's kind of cool to say, yeah, well, I was a party girl, you know, and, and, you know, you can't go to OA meetings and go, yeah, well, I was a pig and I ate too much food. You know, it just doesn't have that 
same quotation. It's like, you know, it, our disease shows up on our ass. Our pants split. We wear, you know, our pants out of the crotch. We have gaposis in our, in our shirts. It's just really, it's not a glamorous disease. You know, we come here together with a common problem, but we do have a common solution. The 12 steps, the 12 traditions and relationship with our higher power. The solution is spiritual. OA is not a spectator sport. Going to meetings won't get you abstinent. It won't get you recovered. Just like going to a PTA meeting won't make you a parent. There are certain steps you need to take to become a parent. Just like there's certain steps you need to take to become abstinent and sober with the food. Um, you know, I really do believe that God has a, a sense of humor. And, you know, especially if I tell God my plans, I've, I've gone a, through a lot of things to program and, and the program has helped me get through this with grace and dignity and sense of humor from, um, okay, I got the time. I'll just finish this up from, you know, infertility, pregnancy, having a kid with autism, you know, kids with special needs. Uh, divorce, remarriage, separation, getting back together. I've had gone through a lot of stuff in program, but I've been able to do this with a sense of humor and, uh, and help from all of you because I can't do it alone. Finally, I'll, I'll stop with, when I came to OA, I knew it was the last house on the block. It, I clearly tried everything else. What I didn't realize then, but I do know now, it's also the best house on the block. And with that, I'll, I'll stop. Mike.